Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that you can check out if you'd like. You can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can do so by sending me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is May 5th. 2022. And I was actually in the middle of preparing an episode on this California bill and looking at it from a values standpoint, since I had talked about values in the last episode. But I'm going to call yet another audible and talk about something that uh, broke last night. And I saw an article in ESPN this morning. Apparently, the PAC-12 Commissioner George Klyvkov and the SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey are back in Congress on their charm offensive to woo senators to support a bill that would basically federalize the name, image, and likeness market. That's the ostensible purpose, and we didn't get a lot of detail here. And the most important part of this breaking news is that Klyvkov and Sankey are targeting Maria Cantwell and Marsha Blackburn, two women, both on the Senate Commerce Committee, which is the committee through which any protective legislation will run. And Maria Cantwell is the chair of that committee. And I've talked quite a bit about her and Marsha Blackburn. Cantwell is a Democrat from the state of Washington, and Blackburn is a Republican from the state of Tennessee. I I hate to say I told you so, but this re-engagement with Congress is playing out exactly the way I predicted it would. And it's going to be an appeal to women on the Senate Commerce Committee. And I've done uh, a couple of episodes that talked about that. I had one that was directed to that very theme, that all roads in the Power Five's lobbying effort run through the women on the Senate Commerce Committee. And if you can get Maria Cantwell and Marsha Blackburn to buy into what you want, you've won the debate. And that's where I think this is headed. I'm going to talk much more about the role that Cantwell and Blackburn play as I go through this ESPN article later on. But this is a tell. This is like a poker tell where you get to see what the strategy really is here. And it's going to run through a shameless appeal to gender equity interests. And that gender equity theme is going to be tied to Olympic development. You get a twofer here. And uh, ESPN published that article, and then they were updating it over the course of the day and getting a few more comments and a little more information. And one of the interesting things that came out in those updates is that Sankey and Klavkoff were joined by Olympic Committee CEO Sarah Hirschman. And she was making a pitch for the Olympic development narrative. And that narrative, in a nutshell, is that the status quo of having football and men's basketball players underwrite all of these, quote-unquote, Olympic sports, which is a synonym for non-revenue sports. And having that model is essential to our Olympic development. And anything that disrupts that flow of money downstream from largely black laborers in football, men's basketball, to largely white beneficiaries in the non-revenue, quote-unquote, Olympic sports would destroy our Olympic development program and our ability to field Olympic teams. It's a silly argument, and it doesn't hold up on examination. And it's just another false narrative that has enormous appeal because it pulls at the heartstrings of patriotism. So you get gender equity plus patriotism. Those are two pretty powerful narratives. And the NCAA and Power Five are propagandizing the ever-living hell out of those. That's a values issue. It's a false values issue. And that dovetails nicely with what I talked 
talked about in the last episode, and that was this chronic values dissonance between what the uh, big-time sports leaders say to the outside world and what they do behind the scenes. It's not clear exactly how this story made it into the public domain. It's very possible that Clive Koff and Sankey wanted it there. And I'm going to talk at some point about how the compliant sports media lays the foundation for these kinds of things that they want to get into the public narrative. And there were a few stories that came out just in the last few days that uh, led me to believe that there was a coordinated message here that was pointing back to federal relief and federal legislation. And these stories were just pumping the gas on the sky is falling narrative and something has to be done immediately, immediately. Same playbook. It is virtually identical to what the NCAA and Power Five were saying in 2019. This isn't any different. And the re-engagement is in a somewhat different environment, as I mentioned in the last episode, that looks more chaotic and it feels more chaotic. And it may be just because there are more balls in the air. The athletes' rights movement, at least the way it's run through the National College Players Association, has been in a quote-unquote kitchen sink phase right now. And uh, so you have all of these threats out there, and I've talked quite a bit about each one of them and what they may portend for the athletes' rights movement on the one hand, and then the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries on the other. And it's not clear what the strategy is in terms of timing. I don't think it's coincidental that this happens as this revenue-sharing bill in California starts to gain some steam. That bill, which is titled the College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Act has made it through two committees in the California Senate, the Education Committee and the Judiciary Committee, and it is set to be debated in the Appropriations Committee on Monday, May 9th. So by Tuesday, I think we're going to have a pretty clear idea of where this is going. But it looks to me, in that episode that I was preparing, I had gone through and done the vote counts and I had looked at the political lay of the land. And I believe there's a very good chance that it's going to make it through appropriations and then to a Senate floor vote. And when you start counting votes, I think it looks pretty good right now, barring some real sticking point in appropriations. And that could happen because of the absence of information on on how this revenue would be calculated and, and the math issues that I talked about a lot in episode 113. But when you're counting votes and you see that the senators who have looked at this bill already or will have looked at this bill after the committee process, you've got over half of the the California Senate. The Senate has 40 senators and 21 of them will have looked at this bill through the committee process. And so far, there's overwhelming support. And if it makes it through appropriations and to the full Senate floor, the proponents of this bill are only going to need a small handful of votes to get to the majority threshold. So it's surprising to me, honestly. And that's what I was going to talk about in my my other episode. And I'm going to come back to that bill and look at it from a value standpoint, because the pushback that that California bill got is virtually identical to what you have seen in the NCAA Power Five's engagement with Congress starting in 2019 and really picking up steam in that first hearing in February of 2020. And it's really interesting when you look at the evolution of the seven hearings that occurred between February of 2020 and September of 2021, you really begin to see a shift, an important shift in strategy that the NCAA and Power Five made from this just basic, we need this and give it to us. That was the attitude that they brought when the Republicans controlled the Senate in 2020. And then when the Democrats took control of the Senate after the Georgia special elections in January of 2021, I think you saw a shift to appeals to female senator interest, and it was all about gender equity. And that culminated with this really distressing hearing on September 30th of 2020. 21, where they played that gender equity card to the hilt and really delegitimized the laborers, the African-American men in football and men's basketball who underwrite this entire business model. And this California law, this revenue sharing bill is designed to address that very inequity. And it really, I think, 
puts some of these issues on the table in a way that the decision makers, particularly the institutional decision makers who are going to have to deal with the revenue sharing issue at the institutional level, it puts them in a position where they have to stand up and declare their interests. And the way that these issues have been framed, these equity issues have been framed by the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, they've created this false dilemma between the interests of uh, female and non-revenue athletes on the one hand, and then the revenue-producing athletes on the other, football and men's basketball players. And I've discussed this quite a bit, and this is the framework that Miles Brand dreamed up in early in his tenure and announced in its full form in 2006 in his State of the Association speech. And it is the financial framework of the collegiate model, which requires the maximum exploitation of football and men's basketball, financial exploitation. And then you take that money and you send it downstream to, quote unquote, participation opportunities and that are theoretically consistent with your nonprofit mission. And you can have a professionalized product in football, men's basketball. You can have the NFL and the NBA for those two sports. And that's okay so long as you take that money and send it downstream to all these non-revenue sports. And that's just the way that universities operate. That's the way the brand characterized it. The problem is he doesn't talk about who's involved in those transactions and, and what this transfer of resources really amounts to. And as I have discussed, and, and I believe, and I think this is increasingly the case, that framework results in the massive regressive transfer of wealth from African-American men to largely and comparatively well-off white downstream beneficiaries. And it's just a terrible model. It's an immoral model. And this revenue sharing bill, I think, really tries to get at that inequity and to couch it in a way that eases some of this false tension that's been created. The, the instance of say, beneficiaries have created a false dilemma, a false binary in this zero-sum financial world. And they did, did that with Nil. They said, look, this is a zero-sum game here. And every penny that goes into the pockets of a big-time football player or a big-time men's basketball player in this nil marketplace is a penny that's coming out of the pockets one way or another of a female and Olympic sport athletes. And that is a terrible choice. And it is just loaded with really distressing racial connotations. And that was what the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries were arguing beginning really in the summer of 2020 through this quote-unquote displacement theory. What I just described to you in their view is this displacement theory. So you're taking revenue away from the non-revenue sports and you're putting it in the pockets of these athletes. And that has proven to be an absolute lie. Female athletes in the new nil market that is the product of NCAA incompetence, you know, they just dump their nil garbage at the feet of the institution seven hours and 40 minutes before the July 1st deadline. And I think when you look at the NCAA Power 5 campaign, hearing by hearing by hearing, you really see an interesting evolution in their justifications for these federal protections and immunities that would outright and the athletes' rights movement. So I'm going to talk about those specific protections here in a minute because I think I know what the Power Five are trying to do now. Remember, this is running through the Power Five, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this ESPN article. But as I discussed in, in my last episode, the uh, Power Five and the NCAA have had their lobbyists working around the clock, and I just scratched the surface of the overall lobbying activity. I only looked at the NCAA and the SEC, and then I have looked at the Big 12's lobbying activity and talked a little bit about that in connection with Linda Livingstone's testimony at that September 30th hearing 2021 in the House. She's the president of Baylor University, and she was put up there to try to make the case for federal intervention. And she ran it through a gender equity lens. And uh, I talked quite a bit about that hearing that was, again, in the House. This didn't, didn't run through the Senate. This, in fact, this is the only hearing of the seven that occurred in 2020 and 2021 that was held in the House. And I did episodes 67, 68, 69, and 70 on that hearing and issues that arose from it because uh, Linda Livingstone and the other witnesses and then some NCAA-friendly Republican members of, of the committee really invoked Miles Brandt's collegiate model as a justification for federal intervention. And they tried to make the beneficiaries of the labors 
of uh, football men's basketball players out to be the victims. And it all ran through this bastardized version of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. And it was uh, manipulative as hell and it was dead wrong. It had the business model upside down and inside out. But with the appeal to gender equity, there wasn't a whole lot of pushback. And this was in a Democrat controlled house. It was a very interesting hearing. So if you want to understand how the NCAA has used this uh, gender equity theme in its legislative campaign, those four episodes would be a nice peek at their playbook. And they're using that same playbook here with their re-engagement with the Senate commerce. And I guess I'm a little surprised at, at the timing here because Clive Cobb and Sankey are going in pretty quickly. And I, I think that suggests some other strategy here that I'm going to talk about and use this ESPN article as brief as it was as a template for how I see the strategy. But in the Power Five's re-engagement here, they're making an equity argument that is based on another false dilemma, another false binary, and that is that there is a zero-sum equity world that we live in, and there is this fixed amount of equity in college sports, and if you try to resolve inequities for African-American men whose labors underwrite the entire business model, then you are stealing equity from women and non-revenue athletes. That's the way these people have pitched their argument. It is absurd on its face. But it has power because as soon as you start talking equity and then gender equity, people just dive under their desk. They're so afraid to say or do anything that could be perceived as inconsistent with the symbolic narratives of the gender equity movement in college sports. And I've described that really as an immunity shield that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries can use not only to deflect criticism, but to advocate to senators for protective federal legislation. And I think that is a winning political strategy, but it is dishonest as hell because that false choice is really unfair, both to the African-American men who underwrite this entire business model, but also to female athletes, because the real dilemma here is whether or not the institutions are going to support uh, women's and non-revenue sports. And there's an important implication in the way that this is being framed for political purposes. And that is that if revenue from football, men's basketball isn't used to underwrite the cost, the participation cost for uh, women's sports and non-revenue sports, then those sports would not be funded by the university. And that is a conceit of the Power Five schools that are all in with Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, and it rests on a faulty premise. And that is that these athletics budgets and these athletics departments at the Power Five schools have to be fully self-sustaining. And if we have to use any general university funds to underwrite our athletics budget, then that will be an existential threat to the institution writ large and to the academic interest and the academic integrity of the institution. And the uh, big time Power Five schools have been peddling that for decades now. And it is a false narrative because that privilege of having a fully self-sustaining athletics department can only exist in about 50 schools. The rest of the NCAA, 95% of the NCAA operates in a world where they have to pay for their athletics teams and their athletics budgets from university revenues. And that's the norm, not the exception. This narrative that's being peddled, this false narrative, this false binary exists only in a tiny sliver of the most lucrative athletics departments in all of college sports. And the implication here is that if these sports, these non-revenue and women's sports aren't paid by the labors of black men in football and men's basketball, then those programs can't exist because we're not going to fund them. What message does that send to the female athletes? It's saying, we really don't give a damn about Title IX. We don't really give a damn about gender equity. And if we don't have this revenue that can pay for all these non-revenue and and women's sports, then tough luck. And that way of thinking reflects not only hostility to the revenue-producing sports and athletes, but hostility to gender equity, to Title IX, and to women's athletes. But this way that the Power Five have framed the financial 
underpinnings of big-time college sports was on full display at Stanford University during COVID when they ditched, I think, 11 non-revenue sports. I've talked quite a bit about that. And implicit in the way that they talked about the necessity for cutting those sports due to COVID-related concerns over revenue was that the athletics department and its budget had to be fully self-sustaining. Stanford University is one of the richest institutions of higher education in the world, not just in the United States of America, but the world. And they were saying, they were saying publicly in their justification for cutting these sports, they simply couldn't find a penny to to fund these non-revenue sports. And baked into that was the belief that that penny had to come from the athletics department and not uh, general university revenues. And it, it's, it was ridiculous on its face, that justification. But they uh, just uh, dug in and said, look, we've looked high and low and we've explored every possible solution to this problem. We just can't find that penny. We just don't know where that penny's coming from. And so it wasn't until two lawsuits were filed. One was a Title IX suit, and that was interesting. And I mean, look into that a little bit more, because I'm going to talk more about this false dilemma and, and the false values dilemmas that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries throw up as roadblocks to, to doing the right thing for all athletes. But there was a gender equity lawsuit that was filed because some of these sports that were cut were women's sports, and there really wasn't a need to cut them. And I think implicit in that suit is that you have the money, so you could fund these. And the richest university in the world was saying, no, hell no, we're not uh, taking a penny from our university side revenues. It's just got to come from the athletics department. And what message does that send on gender equity and Title IX and the interests of female athletes at Stanford University. What message does that send? So you had this Title IX suit. Then at the same time, you had a suit by all non-revenue athletes. It wasn't a gender-specific lawsuit. That was really a breach of contract suit that said, look, you told us, you promised us that these sports were going to be okay, that we were going to have our scholarships, that we were going to have our teams. And then you yanked the the rug out from under us. And that uh, lawsuit was led by Jeffrey Kessler, by the way. The same lawyer who represented the athletes in the Austin case. And within days of those two suits, which were filed at about the same time, all of a sudden, guess what? Stanford University found the money. They found that penny. Wow. How did they do that? I don't know. And it just quietly went away. And we haven't heard much about the Stanford non-revenue sports now. Um, but I did see something just this morning that I think is interesting and relevant to Stanford's claims that they just couldn't find a couple of million dollars to fund these non-revenue sports. But uh, this week, Stanford received a $1.1 billion gift uh, from venture capitalist John Doerr and his wife. It was the second largest gift uh, on the all-time list of, of, of gifts to universities over American history. And it was to, designed to fund uh, research on climate change and sustainability. But that is a massive gift. And the Chronicle of Higher Education did a little blurb on it really to talk about this narrative that has developed uh, in higher education that you have the rich getting richer and the filthy rich getting even filthier richer, you know, and Stanford University is one of the uh, wealthiest universities in the world. And the uh, Chronicle points out that uh, if you were to take that $1.1 billion, it could finance tuition and fees for all 11,300 undergraduates at North Carolina A&T State University, which is an HBCU. It's right down the road uh, from me here. And you would still have $600 million left over. And the purpose of that, those kinds of statistics can, be, can get a little silly, but the purpose of that is to really emphasize how fluent these ma major uh, research universities are and how much money is in the system. And it is obscene. It is pornographic, the amount of money that these universities have. And Stanford University ha had the audacity to come out and publicly say, we can't find a, a few million dollars to fund these non-revenue sports and these women's sports. We just can't do it. And what does that say about their values and their commitment to gender equity? 
and to the quote-unquote Olympic sport athletes. It says we don't really care that much about it. And I think it's also important to point out that contrary to what the propaganda has been on this false binary between revenue-producing sports and non-revenue or Olympic sports, we haven't seen universities in this post-nil market, post-transfer market, shutting down their non-revenue sports. We haven't seen them canceling women's athletics. We haven't seen them cutting scholarships. All the things that we heard during this name, image, and likeness debate. And of course, we also heard that that market was going to be only one that benefited the big-time revenue-producing athletes. That is an absolute false narrative. And women's athletes are benefiting enormously from name, image, and likeness. And some of the most popular brands in college athletics from a nil standpoint are female brands. And that's a beautiful thing. And I'm going to talk in, in more detail about some of these false equity arguments and how absurd they are and how divisive they are. That's the thing that really, really bothers me. And, and that was, I think, the, the purpose of the September 30th, 2021 hearing. It was to divide. It was to speak to the female decision makers. And this was in the House, but they used the same tactic in 2021 in the Senate. This is a direct appeal to female legislators. And, and they're doing the same thing with their reckless rhetoric on the Olympic development narrative that we have to have these laborers in football, men's basketball, underwriting our Olympic development program. What, what kind of a burden does that place on these athletes? You know, it's like, what more can you put on their backs? And it's important to understand that in almost every other country in the world, the Olympic development programs are funded exclusively or in large measure by the government. And, and that's a proper role for the government, not for the colleges and universities that are being asked to do this to justify this dysfunctional, corrupt, immoral business model. These people don't give a damn about the consequences of their propaganda and their divisive narratives. They simply are going to do everything in their power to get what they want to keep the gravy train moving. And these conference commissioners, there's, there's not a female conference commissioner. You look at the athletics directors, and I talked about the uh, membership of that Lead One company, which is a trade association for the FBS athletics directors. 92% of those athletics directors across 130 schools in big-time college sports are men. That's the gender equity hearing we need to have. <laughs> no, we need to be hauling these athletics directors and these conference commissioners and more importantly, these university presidents before Congress and maybe issue a few subpoenas. Yeah, if you want to talk about uh, gender equity or gender inequity, let's go to the root cause there. And so one, one more thing I would just want to briefly point out before I get to this ESPN article and what I think the strategy is right now uh, and what's happening in the Senate. And that relates to the overall lobbying activity that these powerful interests have been using to create a new pathway to get protective federal legislation. And in that last episode, I talked about the lobbying activity of the NCAA and the Southeastern Conference's lobbyists, the SEC. That was done really to talk about the really the values issue and what is it that the NCAA and the Power Five are pursuing in, in the legislative agenda that reflects their values. And, and that's how I use that information. But that only scratches the surface of the overall lobbying activity. All five Five, Power Five conferences have uh, a lobbying presence. You also have an NCAA Office of Government Relations that has two full-time lobbyists, and they have an office in D.C. And then you have a whole army of lobbyists that work at the individual institutions. And when you look at the overall lobbying activity, I'm, I'm going to discuss this in a, in a standalone episode or episodes because it's so important and has gotten zero coverage in the sports media or the mainstream media. But when you look at all that activity and how it is it is coordinated and the aggregation of all that lobbying power, you have literally round the clock pressure being applied 
to senators, and I, as I've said in prior episodes, it is directed to female senators because the the, the grand trump card for the uh, Power Five right now, they believe at least, is this gender equity argument and the divisive narratives they have spun to both promote gender equity and at the same time delegitimize the value of African-American men in football and men's basketball. Again, that's another aspect of this. It's just unconscionable. But when you look at that lobbying activity, it is breathtaking. And the athletes don't have a lobbying presence. I went through the list of registered lobbyists. I was at 24 just between those two interests. That's a lot of people working really hard behind the scenes. And that's just a snapshot, a sliver of the overall lobbying activity. I'm not aware that there is a registered lobbyist lobbying on behalf of the athletes' rights. You have the National College Players Association that has some inroads to a handful of senators. You have the athletes' rights people who talk to a, a few senators, and the senators are working hard, and their staffs are working really hard to try to keep the athletes' rights arguments alive. But I think it's really important to look at who the power players are going to be in this debate, and it's going to run through senators that have powerful football programs, power five football programs in them. And when you look at the senators who are actively involved in the athletes' rights debate and have stuck with it over the long haul. They either represent states that don't have any Power Five schools or that have relatively weak Power Five schools. And just by way of example, you have Chris Murphy and Richard Blumenthal, the two Connecticut senators who have been really persuasive and really working hard for athletes' rights, and they've stayed on it. But Connecticut doesn't have a Power Five school in it. And then you have Cory Booker's a, a good example. He has been a vocal and I think powerful advocate for athletes' rights, but he represents New Jersey and Rutgers is the only product in New Jersey. You got Lori Trahan on the House side. She's from Massachusetts. Massachusetts doesn't have a big time Power Five product. You got Brian Schatz from Hawaii, and he has asked some of the most intelligent questions of any senator in these hearings that have occurred in, in, in 2020. 20 and 2021. And he really got to the heart of some important issues in that June 9th hearing. But he's from Hawaii. Hawaii doesn't have a Power Five school. And then you've got Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. And yeah, she's a powerful senator because New York is a powerful state, but it only has one Power Five product, and that's Syracuse. And Syracuse is not a power player. So all those senators have been really spot on, I think, on athletes' rights. But when it comes to actually putting together legislation and then uh, massaging it and then navigating it through the Senate and getting it to a vote, that's going to run through the Power Five states. And then if the NCAA and Power Five can get by in from a few Democrats before the midterms here, that's gold. Remember, we're only five months away from the midterms. And if the Senate goes to the Republicans and, you know, the House is in play too. A lot of people think the House may go to the Republicans. If that happens, it is an entirely new day. And the timing of this re-engagement through uh, Klyavkov and, and Sankey is a little bit interesting to me. So I, I don't know if there's something going on behind the scenes that has them concerned that they need to move quickly. And there could be some unknown tensions operating behind the scenes in this transformation committee and some of the struggles perhaps between the Power Five and the Group of Five. As I discussed in the last episode, that transformation committee's work product is very thin and, you know, they really haven't focused on name, image, and likeness. That I thought was a curious omission from the minutes of the meetings of the transformation committee. And I've questioned from the very beginning, of this transformation committee it was formed in October of uh, 2021 in anticipation of the uh, constitutional makeover and the con new constitution was ratified in January of 2022. But when you looked at the uh, claims of the transformation committee and all this big talk and the deadline that they set for August 1st, I, I just said they can't do, they can't make these kinds of changes in this short period of time. And I don't think they're going to, I don't know how they can. And that just goes back to this gulf between the rhetoric and the reality. And now you have people on this transformation committee, including Greg Sankey, 
spouting all that same propaganda. Greg Sankey increasingly is starting to sound more and more like Mark Emmert. And then you have this other issue that's been lurking around out there that I've talked quite a bit in prior episodes, and that is this battle between the haves and have-nots in big-time college football. And that tension traces back really to the post-Board of Regents era, and then this effort among the big conferences to try to reunite their football interests. And those hearings that occurred in 1997, as the big-time football interests were transitioning into the Bowl Championship Series era, where the have-nots, what are now the group of five, were saying, were being frozen out in their antitrust implications here. And that played out again in 2003. And I think when you look at what's happening through this constitutional makeover and this transformation committee that is a Power Five committee, it has a majority of Power Five members. And then you look at what the Power Five tried to do with autonomy in 2013-2014, you see that this could be nothing more than another attempt for the Power Five to increase the distance between them and the group of five. And that's always part of their motivation. And I've talked about this quite a bit in connection with the autonomy movement in 2013-2014. And in that initiative, the Power Five created an insurmountable competitive advantage relative to the group of five through legislation and the ability to provide benefits and packages to athletes that was exclusive to the Power Five. And I think you are seeing the same thing. And in that episode that I did on Power 5 Autonomy 2.0, I made the case that what's happening with this transformation committee is nothing more than a continuation of what they tried to do in 2013-2014. And they created a win-win situation for themselves by saying, yes, we need to get ahead of all this uncertainty in college sports and give these athletes a little bit more and recognize their value. And that just happened to also increase the distance between the Power Five and the Group of Five. And you just have to wonder if that may not be part of the tension that may be going on behind the scenes here. And in that regard, I think it's important to acknowledge that this nil marketplace, this unregulated nil marketplace, now could be a market equalizer for schools in the group of five, or even for schools that are trying to move up in the FBS market. The University of Texas San Antonio is doing that right now aggressively and successfully. They're going to be joining the American Athletic Conference in 2023, but they are going all in and they are, I think, using this nil market to try to level the playing field. And if you're the power five and you've got this insurmountable competitive advantage under existing NCAA regulation and this autonomy legislation, you don't want any external market forces that could operate to disrupt that competitive advantage. And I think that is part of the Power Five's motivation. And if that's the case, there could be some rumblings behind the scene with the group of five. Or it could be that Power Five believe that they have been successful in creating this panic and chaos narrative through their minions in the sports media and their allies in the commentariat, the broader commentariat. And there's no question in my mind that there's been coordination there. And I'm, I'm going to talk about that at some point as well, because that's really an important component of their of their strategy here. And remember, these Power Five interests are just, uh, I mean, they are a juggernaut at, at every level in the corridors of, of American power. And they're very good at getting their way. You know, what, what they may be trying to do here is just maybe get a preemption only bill, something limited, something that isn't very controversial the way that they have framed or misframed the narratives now in this new unregulated or less regulated nil marketplace. And I'm going to talk in more detail about what that marketplace actually is and what the true principles are that govern it, because the nil critics, particularly the those out in the sports media, I believe have misrepresented what the state of nil regulation is. And it's not necessarily a question of whether the regulation exist, but it's a question of enforcement. And there's nothing stopping the NCAA from coming in and enforcing its quote-unquote interim policy if, they, if it believes that these nil deals have crossed the line into improper recruiting inducements. Nothing stopping them at all. And I think, and there's nothing stopping the Power Five. One of the interesting false dilemmas that they've created in their re-engagement with Congress is that the Power Five have, have no control over enforcement. And that just flies in the face of the very purpose of 
this Constitution Committee and the work of this Transformation Committee. And the Transformation Committee has the authority now at the Division One level to create their own infractions and enforcement process. And if they believe that this nil market is out of control, then they have the authority now to try to put the, the brakes on it. And instead, they're pointing to the NCAA and saying, oh, the NCAA is not doing anything. And we're in crisis, crisis, crisis. I think the Power Five are perfectly content with that crisis narrative. In fact, I believe they have been very involved in creating it and having it run through their allies in the media because it could be used to put pressure on these senators. But on paper now, after this constitution, the Division One decision makers can say, look, we're going to put together an emergency infractions and enforcement procedure here to get this under control through the Power Five because they have the authority under this new constitution to do that. And in a related vein, how do they think that enforcement is going to work at the federal level? And that's why I did that episode on the federal nil police. There seems to be this belief that, well, the NCAA can't regulate this market. The Power Five can't regulate this market. And, and the reason for that is that these schools at the institutional level can't control themselves. The claimed need for protective federal legislation is a direct product of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries' refusal to regulate their own instincts, to regulate their own conduct, regulate their own people, and they refuse to do it. And that is built in part to this ridiculous battle to gain a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market or avoid losing one. But the focus on this market has been on these outrageous deals and these sensationalized deals and not on the overall marketplace. And those grab the headlines. And I think that, again, is part of a purposeful strategy to get legislators scared. And you get them scared, you have this environment of uncertainty, and then you increase the likelihood that you can get protective legislation. But again, another point that I've made is that we're not letting free market principles work their magic to, to sort out this name, image, and likeness market. And we really don't know what's going on in that market. And we have these headlines, these moon landing headlines about these incredible nil deals. We don't know what the terms of those deals are. We don't know how they fit into the mosaic of nil deals across the landscape throughout college sports. And, and that's not the way that they've been covered. And uh, this nil marketplace isn't even a year old. And the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are already drawing conclusions about it. And those conclusions are this crisis narrative that are based in large part on the failure of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries to self-regulate. You know, so they're, they're creating this mess and then they're running to Congress to, to solve it as if they are powerless to do anything about it. Post-Board of Regents, it took big time football, what, I don't know, 35 years to work out the new marketplace. And with name, image, and likeness, they want to put the kibosh on this nil market after 10 months. I mean, wow. <laughs> but that's what these people are doing. So let's go to this ESPN article and what it says about the, their strategy here. So uh, this article was co-authored by, let's see, Heather Dinich and Adam Rittenberg, and it was posted at midnight last night. Here's what it says. It's not very long. I'm going to go through it because there really are some, some good nuggets here. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey and Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyavkov will meet the, with United States Senators in Washington, D.C. on Thursday to ask for legislation legislative help surrounding name, image, and likeness policies. And I want to stop right there. This re-engagement with the Senate is framed around name, image, and likeness. And then they get a quote from Klavkoff, and he says, I've been invited to meetings with several senators tomorrow to discuss the issues we're seeing with name, image, and likeness, and with the existential threat of our student-athletes being deemed employees, Klavkoff told ESPN on Wednesday. Okay, that's just uh, really interesting, because first of all, he, he suggests that the senators are initiating this re-engagement, and that they must have concerns about the existential existential threat to student-athletes being deemed employees. But what's most important about that is that the name, image, and likeness issue and the employees issue really have nothing to do with each other because the schools are prohibited under the very definition of the name, image, and likeness market from paying any athlete directly. 
and there can't be an employer-employee relationship unless money is moving directly from the university to the athlete. We have these third-party deals, and the no market by its very definition is a deal between the athlete and a third party that shouldn't implicate any employee issues. And Brian Schatz, who who, the senator from Hawaii, who is uh, a sponsor, a co-sponsor of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, in that June 9th, 2020, 21 hearing where the NCAA was trying to get last-ditch preemption before the state nil laws went into effect on July 1st. He was listening to Mark Emmert's BS about the necessity for uh, having a, a federal law that says that athletes can't be employees. And Schatz says to Emmert, what the hell does this have to do with name, image, and likeness? Because the name, image, and likeness market by its very definition prohibits the athletes from doing deals with the universities and creating the possibility of an employer-employee relationship. And Emmert hemmed and hawed and did his usual two-step. And then Schatz went to a law professor, Michael McCain, and Schatz asks McCann, look, what does this employee thing, no employee thing, have to do with nil? And McCann said, nothing. It has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And it is a massive ask. And it was a massive ask. But they've had this athletes can't be employees provision and that component of their quest to steamroll the athletes' rights movement in NCAA-friendly legislation from the very beginning. The Roger Wicker bill has that. The Jerry Moran bill has that. The Marco Rubio bill had that. You uh, had this bill in the House from Steve Shabbat of Ohio. All Republicans, all these legislators are, are Republicans. But in these bills that are ostensibly name, image, and likeness bills, they would all include provisions that make it impossible for athletes to be employees. And that is just a dishonest conflation of issues. And in this context, the reason that Klyavkov is trying to pull in the employee issue is that this narrative that has been portrayed in a NCAA Power 5 friendly sports media is that these deals have crossed the line from uh, legitimate deals with third parties at fair market value into recruiting inducements run through these collectives that are mere disguises for institutional interests. And first of all, we don't really know what these collectives are doing and these booster groups are doing. And if the NCAA believes that threshold has been crossed, it can come in and shut it down. And now the Division One infractions and enforcement process, which is really going to be a Power Five infractions and enforcement process, they could do the same thing. They could decide tomorrow that they're putting together a temporary infractions and enforcement panel and process to get this under control. Instead, what they're doing is running to Congress and benefiting from their inaction, their incompetence, and their narrative that the sky is falling. So you have this conflation of interests, and they're trying to make it appear as if these uh, deals are heading towards an employer-employee relationship, but there is zero evidence that the schools themselves, the institutions themselves, are making direct payments to athletes through name, image, and likeness deals. If that were happening, then you might have a plausible argument that could create an employer-employee relationship, but even that wouldn't necessarily mean that these athletes are automatically employees. The article goes on, NCAA President Mark Emmert and other leaders in college athletics have been asking for federal law lawmakers to step in and regulate nil policies. There are currently no federal regulations around nil, and state laws vary considerably. Do they really? I mean, there are only a handful of state laws that went into effect, and they were full of all these guardrails that the NCAA's federal and state legislation working group proposed from the very beginning of the debate over name, image, and likeness. And most of these laws are very restrictive when it comes to athletes' rights. And that's why you see some states, including Alabama, Alabama's a perfect example. They put together this draconian name, image, and likeness law that initially had criminal penalties if an athlete ran afoul of the law. They pulled that, but it was pretty NCAA Power 5 interest right down the line. They pulled that bill because after this interim policy which didn't have all those guardrails, when Mark Emmert and the NCAA just dumped all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions uh, a few hours before the July 1st deadline, it was a very skeletal interim policy and basically said no pay for play, no inducement, everything else is fair game. So you had a much more permissive nil environment because of the interim policy. And you had states like Alabama looking at their state law and saying, wait a minute, this is a problem because in states that don't have a name, image, and likeness law, they're going to have a competitive advantage 
advantage in the talent acquisition market because they can do more with nil under this more permissive interim policy. So they just said, to hell with that. Let's ditch this law. What does that tell you? It tells you that all these limitations that were put around name, image, and likeness and that were incorporated into these state laws, which were framed initially as values-based limitations to preserve the integrity of college sports and the integrity of the recruiting environment and the integrity of the student-athlete. Integrity, integrity, integrity. All the garbage that the NCAA and Power Five were serving up to Congress in, in 2020 and 2021, that all those integrity-based, values-based arguments weren't worth the paper they were written on. These guardrails were about restricting athletes' economic rights. And when this interim policy relaxed those restrictions, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries like the legislators in the state of Alabama, and you can bet your bottom dollar that they were influenced by pressure from Alabama and Auburn, they just flushed those values down the memory hole in order to get back into a market where they could retain their competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. So this had nothing to do with values. This had to do with winning. This had to do with all the things that colleges crave, power, prestige, publicity, Publicity, loyalty, and money, 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 and more money. All the things that Henry Pritchett talked about in 1929 in the Carnegie Report. Those principles weren't going to do the state of Alabama much good if they're losing recruits to uh, a school, a Power Five school in a state that didn't have a state nil law. Let's just be honest about what the hell's going on here. So then, after Klyakov's suggesting that he had been summoned to talk to these concerned senators. The article says this, Klyavkov contacted Democrat Washington Senator Maria Cantwell, whom he knows from their time working together at Real Networks. He and Sankey will be meeting with Cantwell and Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn and are hoping to meet with other senators from both parties. And I'll just go ahead and finish this out and then come back to, to that paragraph. The goal is to discuss a few of the issues facing college athletics with influential senators, Klavkov said. I think it's more likely that we eventually get federal legislation on name, image, and likeness, but we're also interested in discussing all of the harm that will come to student athletes if they are deemed to be employees. The meeting comes on the heels of Pac-10 spring meetings during which athletics directors and coaches sought solutions to better control the nil landscape. Klavkov told ESPN, it's imperative to enforce rules prohibiting the use of nil as a recruiting inducement or pay for play. Either the NCAA is going to get its act together in enforcing this, he said, or I'm going to be pushing for a smaller group to figure out how to create and enforce the nil rules that we all agree on related to inducement and pay for play. The amount of a nil payment should be commensurate with the work done as a backstop to make sure we're not using it related to inducement and pay for play. So I, I want to talk a little bit about what all that means. First of all, they are clearly targeting the employee issue. And they are, are trying, as I mentioned earlier, trying to conflate that issue with name, image, and likeness. But I think maybe the most important thing that comes out of this article is that Klyavkov and Sankey are directing their appeal to Maria Cantwell and to Marsha Blackburn. And I, I talked about Cantwell's role here. She is so, so important and she is persuadable listening to her. She so wants to be the bipartisan negotiator. She wants harmony and she wants everybody to come together in a kumbaya moment and agree on this and, and get it done. And she is so underinformed for the role that she has as, as the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, this very important committee when it comes to the regulation of college sports. And I've said in prior episodes that Maria Cantwell has been influenced greatly, I believe, by uh, Jerry Moran and, and that bill that he put out in February of 2021. It's a bill that all these lobbyists have been pointing to that they've been pushing behind the scenes. And that bill would end the athletes' rights movement. It has a draconian preemption provision that's not limited to name, image, and likeness. And it also would, I think, nullify any state laws or the application of any state laws that would give these athletes employee rights. It 
has a very broad antitrust immunity provision. And then it has a standalone provision, an extraordinarily broad provision that would make it impossible for athletes to be deemed employees, statutory employees under federal law, whether it's the FLSA or the uh, NLRA. Uh, those three things together and the athletes' rights movement. And at the end of the June 17th hearing, so we had this June 9th hearing where all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries lined up their witnesses to say, we got to have preemption. We got to have preemption. And I think there were six witnesses. Five of them were on the preemption train. Only one wasn't. And I, I did a couple of episodes on that. One was titled Preemption Fever. I can't remember the number, but you can go back and look for that preemption fever. And then you had Cantwell, I think, trying to find some way to, to compromise. And so the theme coming out of that hearing was, yeah, preemption's okay. Preemption alone. And that's the easiest thing for the Power Five to get right now, because I think there has been some consensus that under uh, certain circumstances that preemption is okay. And that's come even from the athletes' rights advocates. Ramogi Huma has said that. So then you had this June 17th hearing that really pissed off the Republicans, because I think the Republicans thought they got what they wanted from that June 9th hearing. They were going to get a temporary or a very limited bill before July 1st that was going to take these state laws off the books and give the NCAA indirectly and the Power Five indirectly power over the nil market through uh, a, a federal enforcement agency. But that didn't happen. And it didn't happen in large part because on June 17th, under pressure from athletes' rights advocates, there was another hearing in commerce where athletes got to talk about their, their priorities and their concerns. And Roger Wicker the Republican from Mississippi basically boycotted that hearing. Jerry Moran made a cameo appearance. He was the only Republican who showed up, but it was a really bad look. And about that, that hearing was a powerful hearing. And it, I think it changed the momentum that the NCAA and Power Five thought they had coming out of that June 9th hearing. And of course, just four days later, you had the unanimous Supreme Court decision in Austin that really took the wind out of the NCAA's sails. But at the end of that June 17th hearing, Cantwell went through a line of questioning that was it was almost like closeout cross-examination questioning that you would see in a deposition. And she was just trying to get some stuff into the record. And she basically went down the items in the Moran bill trying to get these witnesses, these athlete witnesses, to say yes to all of these. But she was very clearly doing Moran's bidding there. And I, I think that Cantwell is a, she's a wild card in all of this because she doesn't understand the issues. She represents a power five state, University of Washington, Washington State, and she's going to get it from her constituents if there's some change in the market through athlete-friendly legislation that they believe is going to threaten the status quo. This is all about preserving the status quo, but Cantwell is the kind of senator that the power five think that they can persuade, and if they can get a Maria Cantwell, they win. They win, and it's not outside their realm of possibility that they could get Cantwell on board. And, and then you have uh, Sankey, I think, pulling in Marsha Blackburn. And I talked about Blackburn at length in that episode on Mark Emmert's announcement that he was resigning. And Mark Emmert just pissed Blackburn off. And Blackburn is a slam dunk in the tank senator for Power Five interest as a Republican from Tennessee in the SEC. And she is a woman. So she is gold because the Power five are going to be using this gender equity binary argument when they re-engage that this no market's killing uh, women's sports and we're going to be cutting scholarships and we're going to be eliminating women's sports because all this money is going to these athletes in football, men's basketball, and that money would otherwise be going into athletics budgets through donations. And it's a bastardized version of displacement. So that's one of the new displacement variants that's coming out of this lead one organization led by Tom McMillan. But if you're the Power Five and you can get both Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from the state of Washington, and Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from the state of Tennessee, reading from the same page on protective legislation that would essentially federalize the name, image, and likeness market and nullify all of the state laws, the executive orders, the institutional policies. That is a win. It's just a win. And they have a shot at that, a realistic shot at that. And it's not coincidental that Klyavkov and Sankey are talking to female senators. And there, there's no way that ESPN's writing this article unless 
Klyavkov and uh, Sankey want them to. And Klyavkov and Sankey want the world to know that they are going in and they're talking to a Democrat woman and a Republican woman. But it is about gender equity. That's going to be their selling point. That's going to be their calling card. And they're going to talk about the nil market, the way that they see it, and how it is suppressing the interests of women, which is not true. They're going to talk about this revenue sharing bill in California and all the gender equity pushback that it got. So this is a, a clear strategy. It's a strategy I predicted. It's a, it's a smart strategy. This is the winning strategy for the Power Five and to just completely ditch the NCAA and its lobbying campaign, separate themselves from the NCAA and from Mark Emmert. And when George Klyavkov is criticizing the NCAA, he is basically throwing Mark Emmert under the bus. And you know, you're seeing that kind of criticism now that you have not seen before from Power Five interests. They were very reluctant to criticize the NCAA or Mark Emmert. And I think this resignation dismissal of Mark Emmert is part of this strategy. They can go back to senators and particularly someone like Marsha Blackburn, who was so upset with Emmert and, and his leadership and his interactions with her. And they can sell a new argument, and that is that this is a Power Five show. We get it. We understand the issues. We're doing everything we can to do right by the athletes. But boy, we got to have some federal protection here. It's just essential. Or college sports, as we know, it is going to come to a fatal collapse. All the same arguments. But they are able then to point the finger back at Mark Emmert and the NCAA and failed leadership as a justification for why this didn't happen in 2020. So this is an orchestrated, you know, let's throw Emmert under the bus and r restore our image with these senators so that we don't bring in the baggage of the NCAA's failed campaign in the Senate from 2020 and, and into 2021. And just to put an exclamation point on the importance of moving away from Emmert's leadership and the harm that he did when he was the point man on the NCAA's engagement with Congress. We, we've got a quote from Blackburn after the meeting with Clive Cobb and uh, Sankey and, and then this CEO of the U.S. Olympic program. And uh, this was an add-in to this ESPN article. But Blackburn says, for far too long, the NCAA has refused to allow student-athletes to benefit from the use of their name, image, and likeness. NCAA President Mark Emmert's resignation is one of many necessary structural changes that will enable the NCAA to support our student athletes. I continue to push for the accountability and fairness measures our student athletes deserve. And I think that just says it all. And you're going to see this re-engagement include that distance from the NCAA and Emmert. So you have the Power Five doing precisely what I predicted they would, and they are running it through the very interests that I predicted that they would. They're going to be making the same equity arguments that I predicted that they would, and they are going to have a much better chance of getting what they want than most people think. And that's where I part ways with some of my athletes' rights friends who think this is just a desperate attempt to try to get some something done because they really don't have a plan B at the voluntary regulatory level. I don't really see it that way. I see this is just a continuation of what they tried to do in 2019 and 2020, and we're very close to getting. But now the Power Five have just tossed the NCAA and Mark Emmert overboard, and they are they're doing it themselves. And it's going to be a direct lobbying campaign, and you're going to see university presidents, you're going to see trustees and, and regents getting involved in this. You're going to, and obviously, you have the conference commissioners. You're going to see athletics directors. This is going to be a full court press at the legislative level, the, the likes of which uh, we have never seen in college sports. It's got a shot. And if they can just get preemption now, and again, they are so close to that. I was going to put together a montage of all of these witnesses in the hearings in 20 and 20. 21 that were asked by some of these senators, well, do you believe there should be a national single uniform standard for name, image, and likeness? And it was yes, 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 right down the line. When you look at all of those yeses and you roll up this preemption issue in terms of the need for a single uniform standard, which sounds very appealing on its face, there's enormous support for that. And I think if they can just get that, get their foot in the door on preemption, at least, to try 
try to slow down this name, image, and likeness market, they're in great position after the midterms because, as I've said in prior episodes, one of the biggest barriers for the NCAA and Power Five in getting protected federal legislation is that the United States Congress has been very reluctant to get involved in college sports issues. It hasn't crossed that Rubicon yet. And if they can just get some bill in place that gets the the Senate over that river, over that barrier, then they are in a good position to ask for more. And, and that's going to come ultimately in the form of antitrust immunity. But they're going for preemption. They're going for athletes can't be employees. And when you look at the range of threats that are out there now, that is their winning strategy. So you have these pathways to employee status through the uh, FLSA and litigation, and then the NLRB at the administrative agency level. And you've got a a bunch of bills that have been floating around. And the other thing I want to point out with respect to Marsha Blackburn is that she was a co-sponsor of the NCAA Accountability Act with Cory Booker. So Cory Booker is a Democrat from New Jersey, Blackburn, the Republican from Tennessee. They joined forces to promote this bill, sponsored this bill that came out in the House a few months before, I think in November of 2021. But Booker and Blackburn put together the Senate companion bill that would basically regulate the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process. So if you've got Booker and Blackburn talking on those terms and coming together, uh, you could get Blackburn and Cantwell on a, a name, image, and likeness bill. There is more movement towards a bipartisan bill than, than ever before, in my judgment. And uh, it's going to be real interesting to to see how this plays out. But I'm going to continue talking about this in more detail when I talk about the extent of the NCAA lobbying and what I think their strategy will be on a senator by senator basis. I want to do a senator by senator breakdown. Look at how the votes would break out if you look at it solely through the lens of power five senators. When I say that, I mean senators that have uh, power five schools in them. And I think when you look at it on those terms, the NCAA and power five have a boatload of votes that really aren't going to be difficult to get. So in focusing their lobbying campaign, I think they are. it's a micro focus and it's going to run through the women on the Senate Commerce Committee. And I've been saying that again till I'm blue in the face. That's their strategy. What's happening right now with this re-engagement, Greg Sankey and George Klavkoff are sitting down with two of the most important female senators in the United States Senate in terms of getting uh, protective federal legislation. And then I'm going to come back to this California bill because that is really important in this discussion. And you're going to hear that. Well, you're not going to hear it. Rest assured that that issue is on the table and that bill is going to come up in in Clive Cobb and Sankey's discussions with both Cantwell and with Blackburn. And I think it's really important to understand the breadth of the preemption relief that the NCAA and Power Five have been asking for. Because if the Power Five are successful in getting a preemption provision like the one that is in this Moran bill, that preemption would nullify the California revenue sharing bill, this bill that's being debated right now because of the breadth of the preemption provision that Moran has. And it would cover any state law that relates in any way to any compensation issue, including but not limited to name, image, and likeness. And that means that this uh, California revenue sharing bill would disappear with the stroke of a pen if the Power Five get their way. So make no mistake about what they're doing. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 